And if you uh, have a Bible, let me invite you now at this moment to open it to the book of Titus in the New Testament. Titus chapter 2. And today we will be looking at verses 11 through 15. But keep your Bible open to the book of Titus because we will probably look uh, at a number of passages in this book because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. That is the best interpreter of Scripture. And so for our understanding today, we're going to be living within the book of Titus. Hear now the Word of God as uh, we begin the reading of His Word in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you would be gracious and generous in helping us understand the truth of this passage today. That this truth is a truth that can radically transform and change us. Oftentimes, we don't really like who we are. And we don't really like what's going on. And sometimes we feel powerless to do anything about it. And sometimes we try again and again and again and again, and we fail again and again. So today we pray that we would see the light of the truth in Jesus Christ and be drawn to him, for he alone is our life. And we pray in his name. Amen. Often uh, I get from people when they find out what I do the following response. And you've heard me say this before. I was at the gym the other day and a guy that I've been working out with for about a year finally comes up to me and he says, what do you do for a living? He says, because you're here in the middle of the day. He said, are you retired? And I said, no. He said, well, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor of a church. He said, really? And I said, yeah. And he said, I've always wanted to be one of those. And I, was, <laughs> I, I said, I've heard you talk, man. When you, I've heard you talk when you didn't know who I was. But I didn't say that. I thought it. And then he said, you know why I want to be a pastor? And I said, no, why? He said, you only work one day a week. And then you only work one hour of that one day a week. He said, you know, that's the greatest job in the world. And I said, well, there's a little more to it than that. You don't really understand the nature of what that involves. It may look like to people who only see you that hour a week that that's all you do. But underneath it, around it, on top of it, behind it is a lot of work and a lot of responsibility and a lot of, let's say, stress at times. And I think 
just as people do not understand what it means to be a pastor of a church who don't have any idea of what that means, there's the same kind of confusion about the gospel of God's grace. We know that grace is important, and as Presbyterians, we know the solos, the five solos, especially sola gratia, salvation by grace alone. But too often, whether consciously or not, we start with the gospel of God's grace, and then we live through our own efforts and through our ability to perform and to pretend that everything is okay. When we have problems as a believer, our, our first inclination uh, is usually we struggle with besetting sins. We struggle with challenges in our marriage. We st struggle with difficulties in relationships that sometimes involve other church members. We redouble our efforts. We set up more rules. We create more checklists. And if that doesn't work, it doesn't work because we do not understand what grace does. Not only do we not understand what grace is, we don't understand what grace does. That is the heart and soul of what I hope to talk about this morning. Uh, the whole of the Christian life, every aspect, is to be shaped and energized by and in alignment with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so every problem in any relationship that we have, every problem is a gospel problem. It's a gospel problem at the root, and often it is a failure to understand what grace does. So in Titus, Paul, who is a pastor, or writes to a pastor, who's dealing with a very challenging church situation at the Isle of Crete, Church members who are insubordinate, chapter 1 tells us, empty talkers, deceivers, whose words and actions are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they know they ought not to teach. And these people professed to know God, but were denying Him with their lives. Paul therefore viewed them in Titus 1.18 as detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The cultural situation at Crete was also difficult. Crete would make Las Vegas look like Orlando, okay? Crete was world famous for its decadence, world famous for its immorality. It was a place where rejects were. Cretans, it was said by, I think it's Epimenides, uh, Cretans were always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Indeed, their reputation for moral decadence was well-known and well-deserved in that part of the world. To call someone a Cretan is one of the worst insults you could have given in that day. So our temptation in a situation like this would be give, to give Titus a series of imperatives, techniques, or directions to help him get the church back into shape. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, he provides Titus and us with a picture of what the gospel of God's grace does. He shows us how the gospel meets our most pressing challenges, how it transforms 
everything about our lives. Paul does this because he knows the problem is sin and that the answer is Jesus and his grace. And this is where Christianity and the gospel itself becomes counterintuitive. We use that phrase a lot to be counterintuitive. Intuitive has to do with thinking. Counter means to go against the grain of how I normally think. For example, I do not hide the fact that I am a big college football fan of the University of Tennessee. And for the past 10 years, I have been in clinical depression over this. It has helped me deal with some idolatry in my life because I don't care anymore. No, it isn't because I don't care. But we got a new coach about two, three years ago. Understand this. Every college football team can have 85 scholarship players. Do you know how many scholarship players are on the University of Tennessee right now? 56. Out of 85 positions, we have 56 scholarship uh, players. What happened to the rest of them? He invited them to leave. He kicked them off the team. Why? Because they were bad seed. And so he came into a situation that was broken, that was desperate, that was horrible, and he basically took the helm of the ship and he said, it's my way or the highway. And we're not going to listen to rap music during practice. We're we're cutting that out. And we're going to work harder and longer and smarter than you have ever worked in your life, and we're going to fix this situation. Well, he hadn't fixed it yet. It's better, but he hadn't fixed it yet. And that's how a lot of us think we're going to change our lives. The situation is not good, so there are going to be some changes coming forth. And we we find ourselves looking at every arm of flesh available to change ourselves, but the arm of flesh cannot change flesh. Only the Spirit of God can change us and empower us. And so the counterintuitive nature of the gospel is you don't fix lawlessness with more law. You fix lawlessness and cretins with grace. Isn't that amazing? I would never think to do it that way. Have you ever had anybody call you everything under the sun, vile language and whatever, right to your face? You ever had anybody do that? Did you ever, after it was over, say, you know, I understand why you said that. I'm actually worse than what you said. But I want to give you a hug and embrace you right now and tell you how much you mean to me. I don't meet too many people who I've ever seen doing that, right? Why? That would be showing grace to a person who is what? Ill-deserving. That person deserves a bump on the head. Instead, you embrace them with grace, and they don't know what to do with that. It's undoing. Why? Because there's power in grace. Law can fix nothing. It cannot fix the flesh. It cannot fix Cretans. It cannot fix the culture. What happens to so many people who come to Las Vegas understanding the kind of culture we live in and the sinfulness, sin city, you know, it's known as that, and they come to town and they live among it and they, I know pastors, who almost get in a panic of going, how can I make an impact here? I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll publish the Ten Commandments and put them on the wall of our church. And we'll just preach law, law. We'll scold people. We'll nag people. We'll rag people. We will curse the darkness. You know, Jonah never wanted to go to Nineveh. You why? Because Nineveh wasn't Jerusalem. Nineveh was the pagan place in the world. What Jonah wanted for Nineveh was judgment, right? 
But God sent him with what? A message of grace. And how many people believe that? About 700,000? What an amazing revival. But uh, Jonah didn't want it to happen. So, are you with me? You better be. Now, Paul does this because the problem is sin. Every problem in my discipleship, every problem in my relationships, every problem in the church, every problem in my work is a failure to understand what grace does. What grace does. And to get this, we have to see the larger structure of Paul's counsel here in Titus. Uh, beginning with Titus chapter 2 and verse 1 and extending to Titus chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul grounds Christian living in the gospel. And the argument sort of goes like this. Gospel imperatives, chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, are based on the gospel, chapter 2 verses 11 to 14, and a gospel imperative, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, is on the gospel basis of Titus 3.8. Or to put it more simply, Paul tells Titus what grace does if it's grounded in what grace is. Hear that again. Paul tells Titus this is what grace does if it's really grounded in what grace is. And you're going to be surprised maybe at what the answer will be. What grace is. Paul wants to be sure that we understand when he says grace, he's summarizing with one word the entirety and wholeness of God's gracious action of redemption in Jesus Christ. It is God's grace in Jesus that has epiphanied. That's what he means in chapter 2 where he says the grace of God has appeared. The word appeared, here's the word from which we get the word epiphany. An epiphany is just a sudden moment of something appearing and you noticing it. Uh, like like a, a powerful moment, not an aha moment, deeper than that. But he tells us that the grace of God has appeared. Well, when did the grace of God appear? When Jesus came. John chapter 1 tells us he is full of what? Grace and truth and of his fullness of grace we have all received grace in place of grace and so the appearance of the per it is as if Paul is saying the person of Christ and grace are the same thing and have the same power and effect upon a life and so he tells us what makes grace gracious Christ has appeared and he has been revealed at this time and Jesus came to give himself for sinners like us. He came to um, work and redeem us from lawlessness and to make us new creations and to make us people zealous for good works. All this grace does. The imperatives that are found throughout Titus that are commands from God flow from this appearance of God's grace in Jesus. Paul goes on in Titus 3 verses 3 through 7 to give us a more detailed explanation of what grace really is and what makes it so gracious. So look at chapter 3 with me and let's read verses 3 through 7. 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us so richly through Jesus Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that passage tells us what grace is. In Titus 3, Paul tells us what makes grace so gracious, and it is this. It meets us while we're still in our sins. He gives seven descriptions of what that help us not only name our uh, sinful condition, but to actually feel it. And while this sinful estate describes a former condition, we ourselves were once, we still see our spiritual deadness in three ways. First, our sin and spiritual deadness are characterized by spiritual ignorance. Notice how Paul describes it. Foolish, disobedient led astray. Each of these words portrays a deep kind of deception under which we labored when we were lost. We lived foolishly when we were lost. We lived uh, disobediently when we were lost. And we were self-deceived. We were believing the lie. And this is the truth of the gospel that is hard to take. It's so hard to take. But the Bible does not flatter fallen human nature. It gives an accurate depiction of it. Um, and, and the power of that is it helps us understand who we were before we experienced and came to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but our spiritual deadness was typified by moral enslavement. We were, Paul says, slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were captured by inward desires and outward pleasures, and we were bound up. If you listen to an unbelieving person talk, they always speak to us as believers by saying, I could never be one of you. Why? Because you're so bound up. You're so into the rules. You're so into being good. I could never be like that. I have to tell them, well... It's not about that. You don't understand Christianity if you're telling me. You're deceived about Christianity, and you're also deceived about something else. You're also deceived of how enslaved you are. You are totally in bondage, and you can't fix it, and you can't get out of it. Finally, our spiritual deadness results in destructive relationships. We were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, and our hearts know the destructive poison of malice and wickedness and evil. It knows, too, all consuming power of envy, the broken desire for what belongs to others that always works itself out in hateful actions. This is the human condition. This is the human condition. This is your condition and my condition apart from Jesus. 
We don't need to watch movies or TV or stream something. We know it in our families. We know it the reality in our own hearts. This is the blackout condition caused by our sin. But grace is gracious. In the darkness of our sin, a light pierces through. God doesn't leave us in our spiritual deadness. God acts to save sinners. The wonder of God's undeserved favor is that he acts to save sinners. And he acts in two ways. First, God gave himself to us to save us. He gave himself to us to save us. Notice Paul's language in Titus 2.14. We await the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We must never get beyond being overwhelmed and awed at the wonder of God's divine generosity. God so loved the world, he gave. He gave, he gave, he gave himself in the place of sinners so that those who were spiritually dead might become spiritually alive. God didn't just merely send messengers. God just didn't merely send his law. God did not just merely... Uh, order things in such a way to prove to us that he is or to demonstrate his presence but he came in the person of his son to do for us what uh, we could not do for himself now I talked to a Jehovah's Witness at the gas pump the other day she was a nice woman she was a sweet woman and I know she meant well she meant so well but she walked up and she had this little paper while I was pumping gas and I was really on my way to here, so it was just up the street, up Russell, and I'm there pumping gas. She comes up and hands me a paper that says, awake at the top. Well, you know, I've been trained. I know what that is. I said, nope, I'm not interested in that. No, thank you. I don't want it. She said, why are you so close to this? I said, because I found Jesus, and I don't want that because it ain't Jesus. You know, I, I was just trying to be straight up. I was a little irritated, to be honest with you. You ever get irritated with cult people? I was stressed out, I had a lot to do, and she wanted to carry on this conversation, and I wasn't being real kind in my spirit. <laughs> I'm sure it came out, because uh, I was trying to be just blasé. But finally she said, well, do, do you know anything about the Bible? <laughs> I said, only that I've been studying it every day for the past 40 years. I said, do you want to tell me why I don't want your piece of paper? I don't want your piece of paper because you don't love Jesus. You don't believe Jesus is who Jesus said he was. And you don't believe Jesus is the only way a person can be saved. And you don't you insult my Savior by your works righteousness. You insult my Savior by denying his deity. That's why I don't want your paper. She took it back and says, thank you, have a nice day. Now, was I wrong or right? I was both wrong and right. I was wrong in my attitude because I was frustrated. But I was right in what I said. I was right in what I said. I could tell you another incident in which I ran a cult member down the street in my cul-de-sac yelling at him like a wild man. <laughs> because I only work one day a week, you know, and I don't have any stress in my life. <laughs> But I have to tell you, I would never defend myself, I hope, like that, but I will defend Jesus every day, anytime, to anyone. 
But there's a second part to what's going on in Titus here. God has acted to save sinners not because there was anything morally worthy in us, not because we had done works of righteousness that put him in debt to us and obligated him to bless us, but he saved us according to his mercy. And his mercy is the opposite of justice, which would have given us exactly what we deserved. Rather than giving us what we deserve, he gave Jesus what we deserve, and he gave us what Jesus deserves. And that's the only thing that'll change you. And all the rest of this is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You're going down. And so, God acted alone to save us. He says, remember who you were. You were a rebel who was spiritually ignorant, morally enslaved, engaged in destructive relationships. Even our best acts are tainted. There was no reason for God to ever show grace and mercy, but he did. And Paul tells us that God's grace and goodness and loving kindness are essentially the same thing. God's grace appeared, his goodness and loving kindness epiphanied. When, where, and in whom? In Jesus Christ, on the cross, and at the empty tomb. Notice how God saved us according to the text and the movements of his grace. He regenerated us. Paul mentioned that in Sunday school today. He did this through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's actions in us are to enlighten our minds and renew our wills that are bound in sin so that we can embrace Jesus freely. And this rescue, this new birth, worked in our hearts by God is what enables us to believe and be saved. We can't save ourselves by anything we do, any choice we make. He saves us. I remember one time I was talking to a young man. He said, oh, Jesus would never do that. He's too much of a gentleman. I said, Jesus would do that and more because he knows you can never do it yourself. He knows you're dead in trespasses and sins. And he knows he's the only one who can give you life. So there's regeneration. Secondly, there's justification. According to Titus 3.7, we are justified by his grace. God declares us right with him, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And he credits us with Jesus' righteousness for us. It is undeserved favor. You know why? You know why so many of us feel so far away from Jesus, why we feel like we don't know him intimately, why we're not real sure about where we stand with him? The reason why is our righteousness is in the way. Our goodness, our perceived righteousness and goodness is in the way. Paul said, I count as loss all of the righteousness I had and consider it as dung, as excrement for the joy of knowing Jesus. Paul said, what blocked me so long from Jesus being real to me and from my knowing him is my own righteousness, my own instinctual nature to negotiate a relationship with God, and God will not be negotiated with. He is one who shows total mercy. He's one who gives us righteousness. He has adopted us. Verse 7 says, We have become heirs according to the hope of, of eternal life. With Jesus, God's own Son, we have become sons and daughters of God the King. Last night, I was watching The Crown. 
And it was an episode. If you hadn't seen it, just put your fingers in your ear. But it's an episode about Philip and about the St. George group that had met for 50 years of ministers who were in crisis. And so they all came together in this big encounter group. And Charles is invited there. And you can tell he didn't want to go there. He didn't want to be around these losers. And so nothing more appearing as a loser than being a minister in a crisis counseling group. And so he didn't want to go, and he was there, and he sort of mocked them and made fun of them, and he was arrogant, almost hostile, and he was snarky. He was terrible. And then by the end of the show, after several encounters with the men that landed on the moon and whatever, he comes back to that same group, and he says, at the very end of it, you have to watch it, but it moved my heart. He said, help. Help me help. That's a guy that's ready for grace. You're never ready for grace until you got nowhere else to go, no one else to hold on to, nothing else to talk to. And that's where he got. But God has adopted us. He was mocking and making fun of these religious leaders and I was sitting there thinking, you may be the is it Duke of Edinburgh, is that right? Somebody help me. Does that sound right? I see some heads nodding. You may be the Duke of Edinburgh, but let me tell you something. I'm an adopted child of God. Take your back seat over here, buddy. I'm an adopted child of God. I belong to him. I am an heir of his kingdom. Now, it's a good thing I wasn't at the meeting. He might not have been helpless. With Jesus, God's son, we become his children, and that is by grace. Now, I used to live in a place called Louisiana. And Louisiana has a lot of little slogans that you learn when you live there if you're not from there. For example, one is Les Lazé Bantan Roulet. And you said, What are you speaking in tongues? Yes, French, Cajun French. And it means what? Let the good times roll. That's right. But there's another phrase they have there is say, You go to the bakery and you buy a dozen donuts. You get home, you open the box, and you got 13. What would they call that? What? Lanyap. Who said lanyap? You're right. That's lanyap. A little something extra. A little something extra. And people talk a lot about lanyap down there. But lanyap is an undeserved blessing. And when we marinate ourselves in the gospel and we mull our condition... God's actions and his movements of his salvation, we see that it is lanyap, blessing far beyond what we deserve. But there's more. There's more. The grace that moves toward us to regenerate us and justify us and adopt us is the same grace that does something within us. Gospel of God's grace transforms us so nothing about us ever remains the same. As I told you earlier, this passage is about what God's grace is and what God's grace does. We've talked about what God's grace is. Let's talk very quickly about what God's grace does. Grace actually does something in us so that we act differently within our households, within our hearts, and toward people. In Titus chapter 2, 1 through 10, a household in which the generation relations, uh, excuse me, in which generations relate well toward God and toward one another, 
Older men, he tells us, are to be models of piety. Older women are to be reverent in behavior. Both the older men and the older women model and teach the virtues of the gospel to younger women and men. In turn, the younger generations listens well to the older and reflect their self-controlled lives. Even Titus is to serve as a model within this larger household called the church. He too is to be a model of good works. He too is to live out the gospel so that those who oppose it are put to shame. Thus grace transforms households with the result that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Of course the real question is whether in fact our families, our churches, our homes actually adorn this doctrine by the way we act toward one another. Too often outsiders question what grace actually does when they see how divided we often are against one another, even generationally, whether you're a, a boomer or a Gen X or a millennial uh, arguing about all kinds of stuff. Paul tells us that those who have learned what grace is will see it reflected in their communities. Where the gospel is preached, where the gospel is preached, it should create what I like to call a culture of grace. In other words, if I'm really preaching the gospel in this church, then one of the fruits of preaching of the gospel is that we will become a culture of grace. We will not become a culture of people who are snobby and uppity and holier than thou and write about everything. We will produce a culture of people who are accepting and warm and hospitable and reaching out and loving on people who are unlovely and reaching out to people who have no hope and not being scandalized by unbelievers' behavior. I often tell people, don't get too upset about un unbeliever activity and action. It's real. It's hard. I understand it. But you'd be doing the same thing, but for the grace of God. And once you understand that, you can reach out with uh, a real heart. Now, grace also works within our hearts. There's a great concern of some that too much talk about God's grace will actually uh, limit holiness. But that's not what Paul thought. He tells us that the grace of God has appeared and it teaches us, it trains us for holiness. In fact, God's grace purifies our hearts by teaching us to say both no and yes. It trains us to say no. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We who were once enslaved to passions and pleasures do not find our sin excused or placated. Instead, the grace of God gives us the power to say no and to keep on saying no to our broken desires and our wayward pleasures. And then the grace of God trains us to say yes it trains us to say yes. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Not only do we put to death passions and pleasures, but we come to new ways of living. Self-control, uprightness, godliness, the very self-control that the gospel produces in our families is the self-control that starts in our hearts. And so how do we know the gospel is working in us? We see it 
changing us, producing in us, training us, teaching us, teaching us to say no, teaching us to say yes. And you said, well, you know, that's kind of like, uh, uh, who was it, Nancy Reagan uh, on the drug war said what? Just say no? Well, just say no is like spitting in the ocean. It ain't going to make a whole lot of difference. But just saying no with grace is all the difference in the world, with the power of grace working in your heart. I asked a guy one time who had a very, very entrenched, besetting sin that he couldn't break. And I mean, he, you know, he got an accountability group. And it's, he said, but the accountability group didn't work for me because all we talked about was, have you done it? You know, have you done your sin this week? Did you do it yesterday? Did you do it tomorrow? And he just said, I just, I just, it was powerless. He said, it didn't help me at all. It just made me feel shame, but it didn't give me any power to change. And so I said, well, you tell me you haven't done that particular thing in two years. I said, what happened? He said, I don't know. Jesus took it away. Did you hear that? Jesus took it away. I said, well, how did that happen? He said, I just fell on my face before Jesus. And I said, if you don't take this away, it's going to kill me. It's going to destroy me and everybody I know. And it's already hurting all the people I know. And if you don't do it, I'm done for. I can't. I'm broken. Help me! And Jesus helped him. Now, it's not exactly the same in everybody's experience. But grace has power. It has power to help you say no to that which destroys you. It frees you from your own self-destructive tendencies, which everybody has. Grace frees us to say no, and it frees us to say yes. But God's grace should make us gracious and gentle towards all kinds of people. We are courteous. We are gracious in all of our relationships. We don't insult others. We don't demean others. We don't use snarky language. When we're empowered by grace, we don't seek disputes. We're known as gentle men and women who show perfect courtesy towards people. This means, doesn't mean we wink at wrongdoing or bad teaching or false teaching or sinful living. What it does mean is there is generally a peaceful, non-combative demeanor that is a result of God's grace at work in us. I have to tell you, if you're really a Christian, it'll show. It'll show. If you really get the gospel and God's grace, you'll be different. You'll be different. You'll be very different. Very different. Incredibly different. You will be a new creature in Christ Jesus. But Paul is very careful to help us understand what grace is and what grace does and how it changes us. So how about you? Has the grace of God appeared to you? Has it given you a new heart? Has it given you new desires for Jesus? You see, it's easy for us to... You know, you know how I know when my heart is wrong is when I don't want to pray. And when I don't want to pray, it's just because I don't want to face Jesus. It's too much guilt. It's too hard. It's just too hard. 
and uh, I get silent, and it's like I begin to ignore him. You know what I mean by that? I begin to ignore him. But thank God for the Holy Spirit who continually woos me, who continually breaks through my unbelief, who continually breaks through the hardness of heart and draws me to the feet of Jesus over and over. And Jesus loves me and never abandons me and relentlessly pursues me and is always about working in me to draw me to himself, which is true life. So, how do we change? We change by understanding what grace is and what grace does. Here's what's happened so often. People, uh, even when I was a young preacher, I liked these passages that sort of spelled out the imperatives because I knew people weren't doing them because I knew I wasn't doing them. And it was kind of fun to get up and preach that stuff. And it's, you know, God could send me to hell for some of the sermons I preached, to be honest with you, no doubt. But I just enjoyed, like, getting people. It's like a gotcha kind of thing, you know. And, and then all of a sudden I realized, but there's this part that comes before it that talks all about the realities of who I am in Christ and the grace that I have, which enables me to want to do those things. I mean, if you're choosing to live an ungodly life, something's wrong. You don't know grace. If you're choosing to follow worldly passions, you don't know grace. Grace doesn't lead you to do that. Grace doesn't empower you to do that. If, if all that's true of you, you got some examination to do. You should have a heart that just longs for godliness because that's what grace does. How do you know you have the grace of God? You've got to know what it is. You've got to know what it does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this passage makes clear for all of us the grand truths of redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we have seen just the outrageousness of God's grace, the real grace, the grace that uh, brings about incredible change in our souls. And so, Lord, we pray that we would learn daily to see more clearly the free and sovereign favor to those who ill-deserve it, a, a love that cares and stoops and rescues us, that grace is God reaching down to people who are in rebellion against Him, that grace is contra-conditional love toward a person who does not deserve it. Lord, we thank you for being gracious to us. And now we pray as we receive our offering that we would give as people who understand what grace is and understand what grace does. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.